0: Well, church, if you have a Bible, I would hope you do. I invite you to turn in John chapter 13 with me this morning. We're going to look at verses 31 through 38. Let us hear the word of the Lord together, shall we? When he had gone out, Judas, that is, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may have a seat. church this morning we want to continue to um, work our way through this wonderful gospel i think and i'm just one of the things i love about preaching through books of the bible is the reminder that i can't improve upon it like the lord knows what we need when we need it and it's like we're in the event minutes of advent we didn't do an intentional advent series of preaching this year But the Lord has given us so many of these wonderful things of Advent that have been kind of coming at us week after week after week. And today we talk about love. Now, it's not necessarily our week of love like we did last week. We laid the Kindle of Love last week. But nonetheless, this theme of love is so vitally important for the church. And we're going to find out why here in just a few moments. But I couldn't, let me just say, let me digress for a second. Let me just step aside and say how thankful I am for those who participate in worship and lead our worship here on Sunday mornings, because the songs that we sing this morning and the scriptures that we read fit so nicely with this theme of joy today. And the Lord, again, just through the wisdom of not just me, I'm not the smartest man in the room by far, by the way, if you've been around me more than five minutes, you know that to be true. But the fact is that God brings so many wonderful gifts to the church to be used and celebrated, and God is just making his church stronger week after week after week as we all participate in this wonderful thing called worship together. And to hear you sing the songs that we sang this morning, man, it just man, it drives me deeper to, into my love for Jesus. Like you singing and you listening and you participating drives me deeper into my love for Christ. That's what the church is designed to do. So just... Church, be grateful for that. Like, I'm, I'm getting a mental picture right now. I'm, like, I'm kind of making a little snapshot in my head. I just what we're seeing, like, we're getting ready to celebrate six years since our first public Sunday morning gathering, uh, January 3rd of 2016. And so January 2nd will be our sixth year of our first public gathering as a church, and we were meeting at Lancaster Christian Academy. Just give me a little bit of a minute here to say how, like, in that room that morning, we were in a library at Lancaster Christian Academy with about 35, five-ish people, I think. And look, like look what God's doing. He's spreading his glory, and there's nothing fantastic about what we're doing. It's just like what God is just doing. He builds his church when his church keeps him at the center of it, right? So I'm just very humbled and very excited about that. Let's get back to the text. Right? Let's get back to our sermon this morning. I, um, I want to think about this idea of love well this morning. Because the word, it's so misunderstood. You ask the question, what is love? Now, if you're an 80s child, automatically songs are going through your head, right? And I don't want to go through an 80s montage with you, but let's try, okay? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me again. Whatever that is, right? Me was foreigner, right? Foreigners, classic. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. Uh, Yeah. Um, Sorry if that presses the boundaries for some of us in here this morning. Um, All the more reason why the church has got to talk about love better. It's really important. Because love is something that's not merely experienced there's something more substantive about love and the christian faith offers a better definition a better experience of love because the bible clearly does say to us god is love amen Amen. we know this but even then we're 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 asked to we have to ask more questions of that what does it mean that god is love what does that really mean and i agree with jonathan lehman who when you when you find that person who constantly comes to you and says, well god is love if god is love he just accepts us all and jonathan lehman's book called rule of love which is really worth the read i agree with him when he says that what passes for love in our world and and, and unfortunately sadly in many of our churches is not so much that god is love but love is god in other words when love is God, what we're doing is we're deifying an emotion. We're making emotion, we're making a feeling God, and therefore what we're doing is we're we're divorcing love from God. The church says, no, you can't divorce love from God. The result then in this mentality is that love is reduced to what? Sentimentality, a standardless affection. And we wonder why there's rampant divorce and rampant uh, lack of desire for marriage in our day when you have a standardless affection that poses as love. Where we define love this way based on our feeling rather than who God is as sovereign ruler and creator of life, we miss love entirely. And yet we still have to sing with foreigner, I want to know what love is. Because no matter how many times we press into that world, what happens? We're still longing for what? We want more love. We want to experience it because we know that no matter how much we've redefined love, it never satisfies in that manner, right? When you deify emotion, it can never satisfy because our emotions are fickle. Emotions are not bad things. The counselor side of me wants to make sure we regulate that. But emotions tell us something. Their gifts, where they tell us what's going on inside our heart, are their impairments when we, don't, when we let them go unchecked. And when we go love unchecked, it becomes an impairment on the soul because it ends in this rat race in our life to pursue something that we'll, we'll never, ever get. And so when we think about this idea of love, love that is God Divorces itself from God's authority, doesn't it? When you have a love that's based has no standard for love, what you're going to do is, no matter how Christian you may want to make the answer, you're going to neuter the gospel. It neuters the cross of Christ. It renders it ineffective. And what we see in this text today is the exact opposite. Because Christ will be glorified on His cross... True love is possible. Amen. Real love is possible. Amen. You can't connect the commandment that God gives His people, Jesus gives His people, without Him saying, now is the time I'm going to be glorified. And where is He going to be glorified? On the cross. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to revel in that kind of love this morning. I, I'm going to call it glorious love. Right? It's the cross reveals the glory of Christ, and because of that reality, it defines unequivocally what love actually is and how we're to love one another. That's what we see in this text this morning. That because the cross reveals the unmeasurable glory of Christ, it calls us, it defines for us what love actually is and how love is actually achieved so there's only three ideas from this text this morning that i think will help us as we walk through it one is going to be the glory as we've already noted the glory of the cross of christ in verses 30 and 31 through 32 the second is going to be the um, the grace of a new command to love and then finally we will end with the greatness of our self-ignorance that prevents us from loving which is what we see in peter at the end that's what john wants us to see so let's talk about that first idea shall we of the glory of christ in the cross of christ now we hear jesus make these words when he had gone out judas that is he now gets more real with his disciples Now, just briefly, I wanted to take note of that because we've all been in a room where there's been someone in groups, whether it be churches, families, and they're they're an impairment on the relationship, right? Like you can't really get real because that person's in the room. Because that person doesn't understand what's really going on. And so therefore, when you're trying to converse with the rest of the group, you have to kind of hedge what you're saying because that person does not understand what is really happening. And that's what Judas is with, right? Judas was part of the whole team but he never really got it. Now Jesus says he's gone and he's going to get more real, more deep with his disciples than he ever has. And he's already said the hour, my hour has come, and other earlier in chapter uh, 12, my hour has come. But what does he mean by that? Well, we find out here in verse 31, he says, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What is going on here? We think of this hour, this horrific hour, where Jesus now, in, in just literally a matter of hours from this moment, will be arrested, he will be tortured, he will hang on a cross, he will die a gruesome and an embarrassing death by most people's standards. And we look at this, and we go, "How? Just speaking humanly here for a moment. How can that really be glorious? How does death? How is death ever glorious? How can it be glorious that we've been following this Jesus for so long? I think about the disciples hearing this message. How can this, the guy that I've given my life to, and now he's going to be arrested and, and die? And of course, they don't know exactly how that's pronounced out this, but they know something's about to happen." how can that be glorious well friends that's what we need to press into this morning for a moment is how does his death radiate glory and i think there's many ways in which the death of christ the crucifixion of christ glorifies himself and god his father First, it glorifies God through His wisdom. I mean, think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, right? He makes foolish the wisdom of the world. On the cross, the full wisdom of God is manifested, made known to the world. In this cross of Christ, God's wisdom is displayed. We all know what Isaiah, I think it's 50, says, right? My thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are are not your ways and this is especially true in a world that has been given its entire life this pursuit of expressive individualism because the world tells you and I that for you to get the full meaning and full worth and the full breadth out of life is that you have got become the most ultimate you you can come up with you can come up with the most uniqueness of yourself so that you can justify yourself But the wisdom of God is displayed on the cross of Christ because it puts the, fool- it puts the wisdom of man to, f- to foolishness. And it says you are pursuing something that you can never have because there's only one truly unique being in the entire universe. God. Amen. So in the cross of Christ God's wisdom shines through. And friends when you and I continue to pull on this thread of expressive individualism by the way that term is not new with me that's Uh, Carl Truman's little book um, that is out, I've mentioned it before, the title escapes me at this particular point, forgive me, but worth the read. But no matter how much you and I pull on that thread the culture wants us to pull on about how to find your true you, to be the most unique thing that you can, a unique person you know, you can be, it just ends up in more and more despair, we see this, unfortunately, in our day all around us with how uh, people are, are, are seeking to say, well, you know, you have to be you so then you get to define what your sexuality is and what your, and what your gender is now. And I mean, that's the most obvious thing, right? We've seen, what's, if you've heard, what's happened in Canada here recently and their laws about protecting people of transgender and whatnot. And we're not here to dump on that. We want to love people where they are. We want to help them see the glory of Christ. But the one thing we do in that is we tell people that uniqueness cannot be found apart from God. And so to whatever wisdom that you and I are pursuing in life that says to you and I that I've got to figure out who I am, that can only be found in God, who He is. Only God is truly unique. It also highlights God's holiness, the cross does. How is the cross glorious? Because it displays the holiness of God. And how so? Well, if you are familiar with Romans 3 23, it says the law demands of us. It demands to be satisfied, and we all know ourselves that we're lawbreakers. We have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.26. Like this is what we are about. And so jesus's death shines the light on the holiness of god because remember let's just kind of do a little sunday school review here for a second god created the world and set it into motion and he set the creation particularly into a relationship with himself and how did he do that under his good rule right the law of god we call this the covenant of works some call it our covenant of creation in other words, God establishes a righteous standard for the world. He calls you and I to meet that standard. And that we are accountable to that standard. Every man, woman, and child is accountable to that standard. Now we all know how the story continues, right? That Adam and Eve, they fall short of that. Like, they reject that standard. They're guilty of transgressing this standard and all of humanity with them. And therefore are found guilty of treason. And they are found deserving of God's unyielding wrath upon them. Not a popular thing, I get it. No one wants to talk about God's wrath. But Christ's death wonderfully brings the standard of God to bear in Christ's substitutionary light death for us. That he bears the entire burden of that transgression for us. That is what it, we see in the cross of Christ, the full holiness of God being displayed because God's holiness must be met. God's standard, his law must be met. And if someone, a worthy substitute does not meet that, guess what happens? There is no hope for you and I. And so in the cross of Christ, we see God's wisdom displayed. We see God's holiness displayed. And let me just say something before I move on to the next one. That when you have a gospel that's divorced from the law of God, you have a very, very thin gospel. Because you can't grasp the magnitude of the gospel unless you're seen on the backdrop of the full weight of God's law and standard of holiness. So that's why we try to often make sure we are always saying law. This is where we fall short, where we sinned, where we transgress God's standards. But glorious gospel, glorious grace. Because grace becomes sweeter on the backdrop of such deep offense, deep despair. God's wise, God's holy... The cross of Christ displays God's faithfulness. He's the serpent crusher. Genesis 3:15, right? The promise to Eve, "I will send one of your seed, and he will crush the head of the serpent." What does that mean? Well, we all know what it means, but it's worth reflecting on this morning, right? that the, in spite of Adam and Eve and our alienation from God, God is gracious and merciful. If you can read the Old Testament, if you can get out of Genesis 3 and not see the gospel, you have not read Genesis very well. Because the gospel is right there. And because of his gracious mercy, he reminds them, before he makes them leave the garden, Adam and Eve, that he will make things right again. And of course, this is that promise that he's going to send that seed. And that seed, of course, we know is Jesus. And he makes all things new. And how does he do so? He will come to pry the death grip of sin and sadness off of our hearts, off the hearts of his people, and he will save them and do and finish what Adam should have done. So the gospel is not just about God sweeping your sin under the proverbial carpet of your life. It is that someone comes in and does what you and I not only can't do, but willingly will not do. That's, the, that's how insidious sin actually is. So God is faithful in spite of this great sin to call us to himself. That's what Romans uh, 5, 12 through um, 17 says. I mean, let me just read that for you just for a moment. I think it's worth putting our eyes on for a second. Verse 12 through 17, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so also death spread to all men because all sin. So, in other words, Adam and all sin, it goes back to our federal head, Adam. That's who we are, children of outside of Christ. But again, I'll just drop on down here. But the free gift was not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more, have the, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Jesus comes and he writes the wrongs. So God is not only wise, not God is not only holy, God is faithful. That's what you are to see in the cross of Christ, that's what makes it glorious. But what's probably even more astounding, and this is what we want to spend the rest of our time on, is that God is love. It shows forth God's love. Again, Romans chapter 5, we know the passage well. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, say it with me, Christ died for us. So God's love radiates from the cross. His faithfulness radiates from the cross. His holiness radiates from the cross, and His wisdom radiates from the cross. See, we have endless songs that permeate the airwaves, espousing the glories of love. And that pursuit of love is absolutely right. It is love that makes the world go round. But it's a sacrificial love that makes the world go round. Not a thin sentimentality that poses love. It's a love that has muscle. It's a love that has grit. True love really loves. Jordan, providentially, had me answer a question after Sunday school this morning for the youth about um, some questions about, you know, is, is excommunication in the church... That sounds very unloving church discipline sounds very unloving and i can understand why someone would come to that conclusion but only if you live in a standardless commitment to love if you live in the world's definition of love which means there's no standards to it just accept me for who i am and all whatever and and somehow that's supposed to be loving like you've heard me use the adage before If I'm standing out in my front yard, my boys, and we're all hanging out, and all of a sudden the ice cream truck comes running down down through there, and my kids go, ice cream! And they go running out into the street. A couple things. One is, ice cream would be death for Asher. (laughs) Dairy allergy, right? But it would be death to them to run out in front of a, a car running down the street. Oh, but man, you know what? Let him have what he wants. No big deal. Doesn't matter if he loses his life after some ice cream. That's standardist love. That's standardist love. Less love, excuse me. No, the gospel love has muscle. It has grit. It's like the mechanic's hands after he's been deep inside the engine of the car and he comes out and his hands are all greasy and grimy and gritty and and mangled up. Why? Because he didn't just go out there and wash the outside of the car, did he? No, he put his hands deep inside the engine to get down to the real problem that exists inside the car. That's what real love looks like. It's muscle, it gets in there. It's not afraid to get dirty. And so, Jesus' cross glorifies his Father's holiness and his wisdom and his faithfulness and his love. But just though we don't miss this point, the Father gets the joy of glorifying his Son. I'll just briefly say this, how does he glorify the Son? And it says immediately, three days later, he would rise from the grave, resurrected, that he'll be exalted king of the universe, that he'll ascend to heaven and be at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The Father gets the glory and loves to give the glory as well to his Son. Friends, there is no one picture in the Bible that is more glorious. It reflects the glory of God than the cross of Christ. Not one. See, the cross stands at the center of the Christian life and it always will. If you want to know what practically that looks like in your life, that's what it means to be a gospel-centered Christian, a gospel-centered follower of Christ, a gospel-centered church. The acts of agape love, right? That's the The term we find in the Greek, agape, other-centered, sacrificial love, calls and transforms everything you and I know about love. Mm -hmm. If you want to experience love, if you want to love someone else, it's got to start with the cross. Nothing else will do. And that's exactly what Jesus turns to next, right? Because he then goes, because of the glory of the cross, the most imperative thing you can do as God's people is love one another. So he's preparing them. He says, I'm going to be with you a little while longer. And while you're here, you'll seek me and you won't find me. Now, what's he saying there? What well, he's saying That glory that I'm gonna get on the cross requires me to leave, at least temporarily. And you can't follow me there. Why? Because you can't die for me. You can't die for one another. I have to do that for you. So I gotta go for a while, just briefly. And he tells us to Peter later on, right? Like, I'm gonna go ahead and you can't go, but you'll come at some point. You'll follow after me shortly. But right now, you can't go because only I can submit myself to this call. I am the only one who can meet that standard. You can't meet that standard. You, your sin will not allow you to do so. And so when he comes into this, makes this transition into love one another, this new commandment, he's not calling them to philo love, right? That's the other love we see in the New Testament. Philo, like Philadelphia, right? Brother, the city of brotherly love. No, he's, he's, because if you go and look at this passage, it's, it's the same words. It's agape love. He's calling them to in other words again as I said already like agape love transforms brotherly love so every time you see one of your politicians lined up on the front of the courthouse out there singing kumbaya and we're all gonna be united and all holding hands they don't have a concept of that do they at least most of them don't I would assume no only in the cross of Christ do we have the full concept, the full weight of what love actually is, and the full ability, the full call, and the full um, reasoning, if you will, to love one another. And so he says, I give you this new commandment. Now that's interesting. Is love new? Of course it's not. The Bible's been talking about love all the way, all along. Here's some exam- examples. Deuteronomy 6.5, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and soul and strength. Clearly, love is a comprehensive reality, and it's been been taught in the Bible all the way through. So it's not that he's saying that there's a new love. Love has always been a reality that God has been calling his people to. Head, love, transform your mind. Heart, love, hands, love. That's what this whole love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mights. But it's that the love of God is the great starting point of the love of neighbor. And he goes on in Leviticus 19, 18. He says, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people. In other words, God's people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, you put all this together. It helps us understand that this Bible has this comprehensive view of love. Like this vertical experience of God's love love god supremely in all things in our life and then that will lead out to the horizontal aspects of our love to love of one another particularly the love of the god's people for one another so in other words love begins and ends with god and two love of neighbor is located first among god's own people which is why he calls his own people the world will know your mind why by the way you love one another so in other words Love isn't just this sappy rom-com kind of love that has no definition to it. It has no standard to it. It's a love that has a, an eternal standard established for it. Who God is establishes everything about how you and I are to love each other. So then, what does it mean? What does it mean when He says this is a new command? Well, I think it's hopefully pretty clear for most of us. It's a new, he's opening up a new realm of love. The Bible has been pointing us to this moment from the beginning. All of the prophets, all of the covenant promises, the law, the sacrificial system, all pointing to this moment. And because Christ will go on the cross and bear the weight of sin and death for his people on the cross and therefore open up love of God for his people fully informed. fully, what he's doing is he's opening up a new realm of love. Love is indeed profoundly new in Christ. That's what it is. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled the requirements of love on the cross. That's why we can't reduce love to this flimsy sentimentality our love needs as i said already because of what christ has accomplished for it it needs grit that's why church membership matters that's something we invented it's not just something like if you're into non-mark stuff like mark dever just kind of invented one day Wrote read a book about it hey this is how we should do church no the bible is very clear that our love Our membership reflects our love i love you you love me and we are willing enough to submit that love and affection for one another to the standard that the bible calls us to it's re-establishing if you were in christ not just a new realm of love but reintroducing to the human race this new race the proper standard of love why because what it does is it establishes a couple of things. A new object of love. See, in the Old Testament, the Jews were only to love Jews. But in the, in the New Testament, Paul says, notice all those who are of the seed, who are of faith, are of the seed of Abraham, right? He's saying, all those who are of faith. So, in other words, the call to love is not just something that's located in your, your genomes, right? It's located in your spirits. It's located in who you are and your identity in Christ. And therefore, we love because of spirit, because, of, because in a profoundly spiritual way now. The lo- location of our love, this object of our love, is no longer just located to who's on my street. It's not just located to the people who who hold to the same cultural values that I have. It's not just located in the people who, have, who vote the same way on the ticket this next year. It's not just located in any of those kinds of things. Love is located in the work of the Spirit to bring dead people alive. And He calls you and I to love resurrected people. And if we love resurrected people, that will be perfect profoundly attractive to the world Mm -hmm. profoundly so there's this new object of love and there's a new measure of love your new measure of love is not your traditions it's not your 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 family like one of the things i love about our church yet if i'm being honest like it, it concerns me about our church right we love each other so much but do we love each other so much that we forget that there's other people that need to be loved right and so we want to be a church that's always praying and asking god to bring us more people to love and when people walk in those doors that we love them radically There's a new measure, a new object. But more than anything, there's a new power to love. And the power, of course, is the work of the Spirit. that indwells God's people. The very Spirit of Christ that's indwelt in us. It's the very lo- life of Jesus that lives inside of us. All of this calls us to a profoundly new love. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is one I would encourage you to turn to if you have a Bible. You know it, but let's read it anyway. It's the great chapter on love. Let's just pick up in verse 4. Love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What's unique about that love? Well, let's replace the word love with Jesus. Let's see what that says. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. He is not, he is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in wrong, at wrongdoing. He does not rejoice, but he rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, let's replace the love, not with Jesus, but with I. I am patient and kind. I do not envy or boast. I am not arrogant or rude. I do not insist on my own way. I am not irritable or resentful. I don't rejoice in wrongdoing, but I rejoice in the truth. I bear all things. I believe all things. I hope in all things, and I endure all things. See, that love is the identity of the Christian because we have the Holy Spirit that indwells us as his people. I love J.C. Ryle's quote. A man may be greatly deficient in his doctrinal aptitude. But even so, a life of charity can overcome his weak, the weakness of people who struggle in their doctrine. In other words, what he was trying to get at there is, they don't, know, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. Love charitably with one another. Wherever you are on the spectrum, wherever I am on the spectrum, live charitably with one another. But there's still a problem that we've got to overcome here. Right? We've got a problem we got to deal with because all that's all wonderful. I'm called to this new profound realm of love because of what has been secured through Christ and the glory of the cross. But there's still a greatness in my own self-ignorance. That's what we see in Peter. We talked about Peter last week briefly at the end of our sermon. And Peter... He just can't grasp this. What do you mean I can't go with you, Jesus? I would give my own life for you, Jesus. And I just love Jesus' question. It's the most profound aspect of this in passage. Will you lay down your life for me? And then he says, actually, Peter, you're going to do just what Judas did. Tonight. Tonight. Before this night's over with you're going to do exactly what judas did so tell me how you're capable of doing and going where i'm going peter no peter you can't submit yourself to the same death you can't submit yourself to the same standard the same requirement that i can submit myself for you that's the whole glory of the cross that god himself would submit himself to god's righteous judgment on our behalf Peter, you can't do that. You, don't, you may think you have great zeal, but your zeal will fail you. You may think you have great intentions, but your intentions will fail you. So that's the chief obstacle that we face. And so some observations from that, and then we'll land our plane this morning, is what if God... has this text in here of Peter's failure to help us see ourselves better. That maybe we, like Peter, are inclined to such great unawareness of our spiritual capacity and zeal too. That maybe one of the obstacles to us loving one another is the fact that we really don't want to look honestly at ourselves. See, we know not how far we're capable of falling if tempted. And that's one of the biggest most destructive realities a Christian can allow in their life is to not really be honest about how far you could fall if tempted or perhaps we look at self unself pity at others who fall into sin and failures in their life and we stand aside they're going man i can't believe that happened i can't believe he or she did that i would never do such a thing and that is a lie from the pit of hell Again, J.C. Ryle, helpful here. The seeds of every sin are latent in every heart, even the renewed heart of an image-bearer in Christ. They only need occasion or carelessness to manifest themselves. See, like Peter, God will allow us, this this is an act of His grace, He will allow us to be humbled by our failure so that we can see, one, ourselves truly, and most importantly, point number one, we will see the glory of the cross more truly. So let's consider a couple questions and then we will pray and finish up. Question one. Does the glory of the cross elevate your affection for the glory of god when you think about what transpires on trying on the cross for you and for me does it drive you into this wonderful deeping affection for god's wisdom his holiness his faithfulness and his love i hope so if not let me encourage you, that might be the point of work this week in your life, if you want to say work, right? I mean, we're not working our salvation, but there is work the Christian must do. Second question, does your love for the church, whether it's this church or other Christians beyond the doors of this church, does it reflect the limitless love of Christ? Or, do you have limits on your love for the saints what are those limits are they limits that the Bible puts on that love or are they limits that you're putting on that love and that leads us to the third question in what ways would your love for the Saints change if you like Peter or I like Peter We're forced to face ourselves and our self-ignorance face-to-face. See, these are questions we want to ponder even as we come to the table here this morning. I won't be honest with you. I, I, I think that if you're a believer in this room this morning, you come to this table not because you're worthy. You're not. I'm not. You come to this table because God is worthy and he was worthy on your behalf. Amen. Amen. The Lord. Don't turn into a Peter this morning thinking that you can fix up your own life and dress it up enough to where you're worthy of this table because you can't. I can never put on enough clothes to cover my sin. Ever. Ever. And that's why Jesus and his wonderful providence gives us this institution the table so that we might enjoy it together this morning. Let's pray.